the Old Testament people of faith, the Jewish people, um, how they were being rebuilt through the experience and through this project of rebuilding the city. The, the, the holy city, the city of Jerusalem, their, their, their home city, and particularly the process of not just having to rebuild their homes, which they, which they did, and rebuilding the temple, which was the focal point of their worship to God, but also the process of, of rebuilding the wall. And, and we have seen how over the past few weeks, um, Nehemiah kind of describes the process as to what it means to actually attempt to rebuild, starting with the foundations. The foundations we saw was through prayer. And then after having established that foundations, taking the first steps in building, the first steps of faith, um, as, it was, as it was termed. And how seeking to inspire God's people to join in this process of building, it was about sharing the vision, sharing the hope, sharing that motivation for them to be able to build. Because as many of you will know, um, who have been involved in some level of building project, you know, whether it's been in our homes or whether you're involved in that industry of building, you know, building is a hard task. It's often a messy task. It's sometimes a tedious task, an uncomfortable task, you know, because one, you find that you, you cannot just build on your own, but that you, that you need to build with a team. Um, and, and trying to inspire a team to build is often a challenge. And, and when you get stuck into building, you sometimes are faced with challenges, sometimes even opposition. And that is what Nehemiah and the, and the children of God faced, in which sometimes it was necessary you know, to kind of, um, as we've seen over the past two, two weeks, you know, to kind of take a pause and to reevaluate um, where you find yourself in that process, um, and then to maybe institute some reforms, you know, to make some mid-course corrections, if I can mix my metaphors, you know, and to re-look at the plan and to see what it is necessary. Um, in order to get everybody and everything back on track, um, especially when you're facing some kind of crises, immediate crises, or maybe even some imminent crises. Um, and that sometimes, you know, was in the face of that there were always those who were part of the team who had alternative, you know, motivations, you know, so those ancient tender trip, tender uh, preneurs, as we, as, as we, as we have termed them today. Um, and then sometimes even having to face accusations, false accusations, having your motives questioned, you know, and, and that is what Nehemiah experienced. And we saw how through all of that, how through this experience, you know, there were these deep spiritual truths that was being shared with God's people that both Ezra and his, um, his assistant um, uh, well, or rather Nehemiah and his assistant Ezra were able to communicate to God's people. And so they reached a point in which the wall especially had been rebuilt with sword in one hand, as it were, and trowel in the other. The task was accomplished of rebuilding the wall. 
Now we come to a section in the book of Nehemiah, and I'm going to be focusing and drawing our attention to Nehemiah chapter 8. You're going to see how in Nehemiah chapter 8 is almost like this shift in focus, as it were. Um, that, that occurs in the book. Up until, up until this point in time, the focus in rebuilding has been on what we might call infrastructure. And that was an important part and is an important part of, of rebuilding, especially seeking to rebuild a nation. Building, focusing upon the superstructure, the infrastructure. But now, the text and the process turns to what is arguably the most important part. Um, of rebuilding a nation, and that is focusing on the inner structure. What actually is the process all about? You see, while the walls and rebuilding the homes and rebuilding the temple, you know, would provide a sense of meaning, would provide a sense of security, the task would as much of necessity have to also be an inward process where the focus would not so much be on the outward, but rather on the people themselves, on building them from within as a nation. You see, it was not just about building the city and building the wall, but it was about building the nation, Pindawaki, Bo Dinasi, as we would say in Afrikaans. But I must admit, you know, that translating that into Afrikaans, does not carry good memories for me <laughs> because, you know, as many of you might know and identify, you know, having grown up in the 80s, you know, that was the catchphrase of him who was known as the Groot Crocodile. Remember him? Paudinasi met a new constitution, was his way of doing and And that's the way he did it, if you will remember. But, you know, it, it wasn't actually a good constitution, unfortunately, you know. Um, it was more likely, um, you know, uh, a, a, a bad case of political constipation, you know. Um, because at the end of the day, and here we are, you know, still having to pay the debt, you know, of what happened in the 1980s. But that, that's another story for, for another day. But, you know, one of the great tragedies of that period was that, the Groot Crocodile was wanting to build the nation through division. And his manual for doing that was tragically and unfortunately the Bible. And so how then do we, how does one go about building or seeking to rebuild a nation? But you see, as a child of the 80s, um, you know, listening to the alternatives that were being expressed, you know, that you must do this by giving power to the people. You know, it was Amandla Awetu, you know. And so there I was, you know, as a, as a high schooler having to consider, you know, what exactly would my role be within all of that? You know, and so there was a little bit of a movement, you know, that I was, that I was part of that was saying, you know, we believe that liberation will come through education. But more specifically, you know, while I was growing up in the 80s, you know, and being part of the church, and I was actually being trained to be a Sunday school teacher at the time um, through an organization called the South African National Sunday School Association, and they came up with a slogan, and their slogan was this, build the nation through 
Christian education. And I found that quite striking because there's a sense in which when we read through the book of Nehemiah chapter 8, that that is kind of the principle that is coming out here that you know, yes, while we have might, might have been able to rebuild the nation through focusing upon the necessary superstructure and infrastructure, what about the inner structure? What about what is actually necessary when it comes to us as the people of the nation? It is maybe building the nation through proper biblical education. And so we read in Nehemiah chapter 8, a fascinating chapter that is the favorite of, you know, many preachers, you know, because it tends to kind of focus, seems to suggest, you know, that it's all about preaching, you know, and there's a sense in which that is, that is kind of true. But also Nehemiah chapter 8 is known for verse 10, you know, a wonderful verse, you know, about the joy of the Lord being our strength. And so I want to affirm both of those, but it's important to understand those concepts within, within the context of the passage, within the context of the story. And so we read, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate on the field of grass on, in the green school. No, okay, sorry, that, that's not exactly in the Bible, but I think you kind of get the point. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it from daybreak till noon. And now you know what time you're going to be getting home today. But, you know, it seems as if, you know, we, we live in an instant world in which that is what we want. You know, we want everything instantly. You know, you want your instant coffee, your instant breakfast, your fast food, you know. And, and within the, the, the busyness of society, you know, the access to things that are, that are kind of instant, you know, is, is, is often very useful. But sometimes that often translates into, you know, the spiritual challenge, you know. You know, how quickly can we get through the sermon on a Sunday morning, you know. Because, you know, listening to the sermon is like one of the other options, you know. It's like McDonald's, you know. But I want to, I want to assure you that the sermon shouldn't be seen as the happy meal, you know, that comes, that comes with a McDonald's meal. It was necessary for them to spend time to understand what God was wanting to do within their hearts. And so as he faced the square before the water gate, in the presence of the men and the women and the others and others who could understand, they read the word and you'll discover that it was actually more than just that. You see, building and rebuilding a nation is a process. And especially when it comes to being able to do it, focusing upon the area where it matters the most. Because, you see, we can have the most wonderful infrastructure within our country. And yes, we, we, we do need that. We have, to, we have to work in that. You know, We can have the most wonderful security. We can have the most powerful currency. You know, and all the other things that we want to desire socioeconomically. 
But when the heart of people is rotten, when the heart of people is not focused and not um, following the precepts of the Lord, then we are facing a huge problem. And so rebuilding is a process, a biblical educational process, if I might want to term it that. That for us, yes indeed, is focused around hearing God's word. Often we refer to that as preaching. But I think better understood biblically, <coughs> it's the process of discipleship. You see, I often have to remind people what Jesus told his disciples to do in the Great Commission. You know, teach them to obey everything I have taught you. That's the process of discipleship. It's not just listening to a sermon and saying, you know, ah, oh, you know, that was a good message. That was a wonderful message. And sometimes we even want to applaud, applaud, applause it. And then we walk away and nothing has happened and nothing has changed. It's a process in which the scriptures that when it is read and when it's explained to us brings about a change, brings about a reorientation within our lives. You know, that's a goal that is expressed through the specific kind of preaching that I believe is evident here um, amongst us. You know, as I've listened to our pastors preaching over the past few weeks, you know, scripture, uh, a preaching that focuses upon the scriptures and seeks to bring about an understanding as to what the word of God is saying to us. Sometimes it is just a proclamation. Other times it's, it's got an evangelistic element to it. Sometimes it's focused specifically on teaching. Sometimes it's about encouraging. Sometimes they are just speaking to us. They are dialoguing with us. They are prophesying. They are witnessing. But the goal is always that to bring about an understanding. You see, because understanding is not just a mental process, biblically speaking. Understanding and listening to God's word is always the assumption that after we have heard it, it has to settle a bit lower than just our heads, but into our hearts. That is what biblical understanding is all about. It's about this goal of transforming, of changing our lives. The target always being the heart. And so all the people we read listened attentively to the book of the law, or the, the book of the law. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. I mean, there you have it. You know, six feet above contradiction, you know, is the way in which most preachers like it. But you see, within these verses, we begin to see not just a statement of a fact but rather a, a recognition as to why they found themselves in that position and what was necessary. Listen very carefully. Listen carefully. They listened attentively to the book of the law. You see, they had come to a recognition that the reason why they had to go through that period of what became known as the Babylonian exile the reason why God had allowed the foreign nation to come in and to destroy um, the, the city in which they were living in and take them off into captivity was simply because they had become disobedient to the very law that God had given them. Now I want to say here this morning that, that I'm not here to bemoan the fact that there's a lack of Bible reading and prayer in our public schools. 
Because honestly, that is not the answer. Because when we had it, when we had it, we weren't truly a nation under God. What did it give us? It gave us separation. It gave us apartheid. Now, I'm also not here to talk about having it, you know, in, in, in other places, you know. But we need to recognize that the point here is that we need to make sure that the Word of God is present and that the Word of God is more evident where it is needed actually the most. And that is in the home. You see, I think there's a sense in which we as parents, <coughs> we often abdicate our responsibility of teaching the word, of teaching the scriptures, and we say, no, the pastor must do it, you know, the youth ministry or the children's ministry um, leaders, they must do it. Yes, they have a role to play, but they only have us for a few hours in, in a week, you know. But, but as parents, you know, we've got our kids for the whole week. And you see, I'm also not talking here that we need to bring back those days in which we used to come to church carrying our size 12 King James Version of the Bible, red letter edition. No, I'm, I'm actually wanting to highlight what is actually the goal of the study of Scripture. It's to have the Word of God inscribed in our hearts. You see, and it's, it's also not about becoming, as some people think, the goal must be, you know, to be a good Bible puncher, you know, where we will be able to provide that kind of proverbial knockout blow to all of those atheistic, secularist, secularistic, and pluralistic sinners out there. Because we think that that is our task. <coughs> no. It is rather the goal of what Psalm 119 speaks about. Three verses, very powerful verses. <coughs> Psalm 119, verse 9. How can a young person keep their way pure? By living according to your word. Verse 11. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Verse 105. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. And a light unto my path. You know, and it's also not even about, you know, as some people would want to make it out to be today. You know, that we need to have certain convictions, you know, about, about the Bible. You know, because, you know, if you do not carry, you know, these kind of specific theological convictions, you know, about the Bible, you know, you kind of are all eternally lost, you know. And so you see the Christian world, you know, ravaged by this internal fighting. You know, for what they believe, we need to believe about the Bible. And those things are, are actually very good, you know. But then you hear all of these wonderful theological terms being thrown about, you know, about the inerrancy of Scripture and the infallibility of Scripture and the sufficiency of Scripture. And all those things are actually good. But, you know, sometimes the question I ask myself when I see Christians fighting over these terms, you know, even within our own wider church denomination and family, the question I ask myself is this, you know, has any of that actually ever saved anybody? It's because it's not so much what we believe about the Bible, but it's about how we live the Bible. You see, all of those things might be good and well, but they don't actually save anybody. You know, and, and, my, and if there was a court case um, on this, 
you know. Um, I would present to you the exhibit A being um, the devil, you know, because he believes the Bible. He believes all these wonderful things about the Bible. In fact, he was even able, when Jesus, when he was tempting Jesus, to use the Bible and to quote Scripture. But you see, it's more than just that. It is when this, that we call the holy book, makes us holy, that the goal of building has been accomplished. And it all depends upon us when we read the Bible to depend upon the one who has inspired the writing of that Bible, the Holy Spirit. Because it is only through the work of the Spirit that dry bones can come to life. And that can only happen by the work of the Spirit. You see, I like the way the Gideon's Bible, I don't know if you remember the Gideon's Bible, you know, when I used to be in school, the Gideon's, this group of businessmen, you know, who tried to make the Bible available to many people would come around to schools and they would give each one of us this small New Testament, you know, and they, they have this project, you know, in which they want to place and they, are, they have accomplished that to a large degree of placing a copy of the Bible in every hotel room in the world. I don't know if you've ever read through <laughs> the introductory parts, you know, of the of, of the Gideon's Bible, but I like the way. Thank you very much. I like the words that are actually recorded right at the beginning of the Gideon's Bible. You know, to talk about the Bible, and this is and this is how it reads. It says, "This book reveals the mind of God." The state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy, its precepts are binding, its histories are true, and its decisions are immutable, means, meaning unchangeable. Read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map. The pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, the Christian's charter. Year two, heaven is open <clears throat> and the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is its grand subject, our good its design and the glory of God its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, prayerfully. It's a mine of wealth a paradise of glory and a river of pleasure. It is given you in life, will be opened in judgment and be remembered forever. It involves the highest responsibility, will reward the greatest honor and condemn all who trifle with its sacred contents. Owned, it is riches. Studied, it is wisdom. Trusted, it is salvation. Loved it is character, and obeyed it is power. You see, we, we live in a day and an age in which people do want to hear God's voice, in which people do want to hear the word of God. And yes, you know, sometimes God does speak to us in many, many different ways. I'm not wanting to deny that. But you know, when you are struggling to hear God's voice, the best thing to do is, is to read the Bible, and to read it loudly.
But our text continues. Beside Nehemiah and Ezra stood a group of people, Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Maasiah, and on his left was Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them, and as he opened it, the people all stood up. I'm not going to ask you to stand up. But I think what we need to understand over here was that there was a recognition that the law of God, that the word of God had been neglected. And so the people, as an acknowledgement of the importance of God's word, shows it reverence. And that's why it happens in some church traditions that whenever the Bible, whenever the scriptures is being read, the people stand up. Because they say that which is going to be read is important, it is holy, it is the word of God. And so Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lift up, the, up their hands and like good Baptists responded, Amen, Amen. Okay, the like Baptist part wasn't actually in the text. Yeah, okay. Then. And they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. I don't know if reading the scriptures has become just like reading another book, reading another novel, you know, or, or, or just reading something, you know, for, for, for the pure pleasure thereof. But you see, it is when we read the Bible and it becomes a spirit-filled and a spirit-led reading of the scriptures. And when preaching happens in exactly the same manner, it should draw us to worship. You see, it is wonderful to precede the preaching of the Word of God through worship as we experienced this morning, through worship singing. But what should also follow the preaching and the reading of God's Word must be worship. And what is worship? Worship is saying, I'm orientating my life and everything within my life in the way in which God has designed it. You see, reading the Scripture should not become just a ritual. One of those things that we, that, that we do, because it is actually the food to our souls. You know, it is like we focus upon eating food in order to nourish our bodies. That is what the reading of Scriptures and the study of Scriptures should actually accomplish within our lives. Because remember, Jesus' answer to the devil's twisting of the scripture was, but man does not live by bread alone. Jesus was quoting the book of Deuteronomy, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. <clears throat> and so the Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatiah, Hodiah, Maasiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, and Peliah instructed the people in the law. While the people were standing there, they read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. You see, while the scriptures is indeed the word of God, and while its overall message can be understood, the scriptures do require explanation. The scriptures do require the correct interpretation. 
And once we have received the correct interpretation, it requires application. It requires that we say, I've not just heard the word of God, but I am going to be living according to the word of God. And that is the goal of why we should be reading and studying scriptures. I know many of you men are like me. Now, whenever we buy a new gadget, you know, we, we get very excited about unboxing that new gadget. You know, and then we want to set it up and we want to, and we want to get it going. And many of us, we, 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 we do the obvious thing. We ignore the instructions. Eh? And so later on, as we get stuck, you know, eventually we turn to those instructions. and say, now where did I put those instructions? You know? And we grab at those instructions and we kind of have to make head or tail, you know, because it's often in languages that we don't understand. And sometimes, especially if those instructions, you know, um, we bought that gadget at Chinatown. The English is not always that very good. <laughs> you know, so this makes for, 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 for fun reading. You know, but the purpose of the instructions is to help us, you know, to use that particular gadget that we have bought, to use it properly, to use it and to make sure it's been, it's been used in the way and the manner for which it has been designed. Our instruction manual is the scriptures. And so we need to read the scriptures, we need to study the scriptures, because the only way in which we can live life successfully is by following the user manual provided to us by God. You see, reading the scriptures and studying the scriptures should bring about a sense of the, the goal that God has placed before us, and that is holiness. To be able to form us into the likeness and to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. And so that is sometimes why when we read the Scriptures, it rebukes us. But sometimes it corrects us and it encourages us. And Nehemiah said to the people after they had listened to God's Word, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. The day is holy to our God. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. You see, it is when we have mission accomplished by having followed the instructions, and we now can use the little gadget that we have bought. It brings satisfaction. And you see, and that is what the joy of the Lord is all about. See, it is when the goals of holiness have been accomplished within our lives. It is when all the instructions of Scripture have been implemented in our lives, it is then that we can live life in the way God has designed it. You see, it is a, it is a caricature that we have. You know, to say, oh, you know, the Bible and the law of God, you know, is all about do's and don'ts, you know, do this, don't do that, you know, do this, don't do that. But just think about it. You know, for those of us who enjoy sport, you know, um, let's, for example, take the game of soccer, you know. In order to enjoy the game, you must play it according to the rules. You know, you can't take the rules of rugby and bring it into soccer, even though that's actually how rugby was started, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Um, if you really want to enjoy the game, you must play it according to the rules. And God has given us the rule book of life. You know, and so in order to enjoy life, because that is not what God's intention was, you know, to kind of be this, this, this killjoy, to give us all these instructions and to say, this is what you mustn't do and this is what you mustn't do. But no, 
The goal of scriptures is actually for our good. And there is a common good that can be found by following the scriptures. And so the Levites calmed all the people saying, be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. And all the people went away to eat and to drink and to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. On the second day of the month, the heads of all the families, along with the priests and the Levites, gathered around Ezra, the teacher of the law, and gave attention to the words of the law. They found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in, a, in temporary shelters during the festival of the seventh month, and they should proclaim the word and spread it throughout their towns and in Jerusalem. Go into the hill country and bring back branches of olive and wild olives, and from myrtles and palms and shade trees to make temporary shelters as it is written. So the people went out and brought back branches and built temporary shelters on their own roofs, in their courtyards, in the courts of the house of God, and in the square by the water gate, and one by the gate of Ephraim. The whole company that had returned from the exile bought, brought, um, built temporary shelters and lived in them. You see, what they were simply doing was following an instruction that God had given to them that would characterize them as his people. You see, coming out of exile was exactly the same as the experience that they had of coming out of Egypt. You see, when they came out of Egypt, God provided for them. God led them through the wilderness and God said to them, I am going to be the one leading and guiding you and I'm going to be providing you for all of your needs. They lived in temporary structures until God brought them to that place where they could live in the land and enjoy permanent structures. But you see, they had forgotten about that. When they were living lives that were comfortable, when they had accomplished everything that they had set out to do, you know, and had the security of their homes and had the security of the city, they abandoned their God. They put the instructions aside and they thought that everything was now okay. You see, following the scriptures is God's directive as to how we should live as God's people. You see, and the, and the text here was providing them to remember how God had delivered them from slavery through what became known as the, the Feast of Booths or otherwise known as the Feast of Tabernacles, remembering the temporary shelters of their wilderness wanderings. But now they, they've returned from exile, which is equated to the exodus out of Egypt. And God is saying to them, you actually have to live like this. Don't become secure again through these walls that have been rebuilt. But recognize where the foundations actually are. Live like exiles. Just during this past week, the, the leader of the ministry in which I'm involved in sent out as an encouragement. A quote that I would like to read to you as we draw the section to a close. Um, an American theologian by the name of Stanley Hauervas, especially, you know, in the fallout of what has happened in the United States and the involvement of, you know, especially evangelical Christianity, you know, as Craig said last week, you know, people who were so focused upon thinking that we need Caesar's power to do Christ's work. You know, um, the, uh, American Christianity and evangelical Christianity, and I say this with the greatest of respect to them, are reeling in what has recently been happening. You know, that their so-called man is not in power. But this is what Stanley Harvavas, um, um writes, and he says, 
But many Christians are wringing their hands over the loss of God in society and of our Christian heritage. Well, I actually think that one of the good things that is happening today is precisely the loss as Christians of our status and power in wider society. That loss makes us free. We as Christ's disciples ain't got nothing to lose anymore. He's an American. That's a great advantage because as people with nothing to lose, we might as well go ahead and live the way that Jesus wants us to live. We don't have to be in control or be tempted to use the means of control. We can once again, like the first Christians, be known as people, as that people that don't BS the world. I'm not going to use the word that he actually used. Despair is a sin. And I'm hopeful because being a people of peace is ultimately about God's victory in the world and it's not about us. See, the chapter ends. From the days of Joshua the son of Nun until the day the Israelites had not celebrated it like this. And their joy was very great. Day after day, from the first day to the last, Ezra read from the book of the law of God. They celebrated the festival for seven days, and on the eighth day, in accordance with the regulation, there was an assembly. In other words, they had church. <laughs> and so the nation was built through devotion and obedience to God's word. How are we going to build? How are we going to rebuild? Yes, while we might need to focus upon, to some degree, the infrastructure and the superstructure, it's actually all about the inner structure. And it's about building according to the instruction manual that God has given us, and that is His Word. Let's pray. Gracious God, as we have considered where we find ourselves as your people and why it is we find ourselves where we do find ourselves. We recognize that it's not just us as your people, but indeed all of the people of this world that has refused and that has been living in rebellion to your divine instructions. But we want to thank you for the opportunity that you grant us as your, your people. That as we seek to become part of this rebuilding of our community. And rebuilding of our country. And rebuilding of this world in which you have placed us. In which you have given us that stewardship responsibility. Father God we pray that we might allow you through your spirit to start that building process amongst us in our hearts first of all and make us holy cause us to be the salt and the light of this world so that while people in this world might never ever turn to the instruction manual that you have given us the Bible your written word we pray that as they look at our lives, 
and as our lives might become the only Bible that they would ever read. We pray that the instructions might be holy and that the instructions might be pure and that the instructions might be a true reflection of that which you have called us to be. We thank you for this and we pray that your spirit might enable us to accomplish this. Through Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior we pray this. Amen.